Hi, I'm Martina Navratilova. Lesbian, gay and transgender people are part of every community. We are your teammates, your neighbors, your family. They claim 10% homosexuals in the population. It's been dubbed the Gay Oscars. Nominations for the GLAAD Awards are out. And as the world turns, had America spinning with a hot teenage boy-on-boy kiss. You call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. Homosexuality, gay marriage, tolerance, bigotry. What is the biblical view? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian author, speaker, and apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and today we'll examine what for some is a very uncomfortable topic, homosexuality. Pat's guest is Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, who's written a new book on the topic, and we think you're going to get some real evidence and answers on this issue. Speaking of which, go to our website and take advantage of the multitude of resources at evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. We've got interviews with scholars and topics from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So while you're listening, be sure you go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Pat? Yes, thanks, Kevin. Returning with us again this week to speak on this important subject of homosexuality and gay marriage is the National Director of Probe Ministries and my boss and one of our favorite guests, of course, Kevin, Kirby Anderson. So, Kirby, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Kirby, you just published a new book, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality. In fact, it's a compact book, hard-hitting facts, right to the point. It's a great book. Tell us a little bit about it, Kirby. It just came right off the press. It really is an attempt to try to take some of the questions that I run into most often as a talk show host or when I go go out and speak on the subject, and we kind of break it down into talking a little bit about this issue of homosexuality in society, homosexuality in relationships. We talk about its impact on families, uh, spend a fair amount of time talking about schools because there has been really an attempt to promote what is known as the gay agenda in the schools. We talk about the causes of homosexuality, how to interpret uh, homosexuality from the Bible, what's happening inside the churches, what's also happening in the political arena, even with the redefinition of marriage to same-sex marriage and then even some of the social impact because there's an attempt to try to get homosexuals in the military. What I try to do is take about the 50 or 60 most asked questions on any particular topic, this one on homosexuality, and try to give you a two to five minute answer with a number of end notes so that you can follow those up as well as a bibliography. And I found that most people probably aren't interested in reading a whole book on homosexuality and usually it's on just one area, either how to minister to homosexuals or same-sex marriage or homosexuality in school. I try to put all of those together in a shorter format. So again, if you can uh, give me uh, anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes, I can really educate you quite a bit on the subject. And that's really kind of the goal here of the biblical point of view on homosexuality. Yes, and most of us in the public arena, this is what we need, something quick and hard-hitting right to the facts the people that we're dialoguing with who really haven't thought through the issues. That's what I think we're finding out, Pat, is more and more people find themselves kind of on the front lines. It used to be that the, quote, professional people, the speakers, people then even in the pastorate on the front lines, we're all on the front lines anymore because what is happening is you're just chatting with somebody at Starbucks or you're talking to somebody in your family and they bring up the issue of homosexuality. It's almost impossible to avoid it anymore. I mean, you've had decisions about same-sex 
same-sex marriage. You've had uh, court cases relating to that. You have churches that have been willing to ordain homosexual bishops. Uh, you have people that are questioning whether or not the Bible actually condemns homosexuality. And all of those discussions are taking place in our world. And a lot of people find themselves saying, you know, I wish I knew a little bit more about this because very quickly when I get involved in this discussion, if somebody has really read some books or read some gay literature, they've got some pretty interesting facts. But what do I say when they begin to make some of those statements? And this is really an attempt to give you some quick answers, but then also to give you some end notes so that you can go and find more research if you were actually interested in doing so. Yes, and one of the things we covered last week, and I want to mention again, that there are several states battling this whole issue of same-sex marriage. And legalizing same-sex marriage has tremendous ramifications on a culture and a society and the country. It's not just, well, it doesn't affect me. You know, what you do in bed doesn't affect my home or my house. And as we discussed last week, yes, it does. It's an issue that we all need to be concerned about and vote on in an appropriate manner. Just think of how all this took place in 10 years. In 1993, the Supreme Court of Hawaii ruled that the state's existing statutes um, on marriage were sex discrimination. Then you can fast forward through a number of other things, the Defense of Marriage Act. There were some votes that were taking place in Alaska. In 1999, you had the Supreme Court of Vermont creating for the first time uh, civil unions, but then you come up to November of 2003, it's only 10 years later, four judges in the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court basically overturned any law in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts on marriage. Fast forward a little bit more, you find yourself five years later in 2008, the California Supreme Court, again, four judges again, overturned laws having to do with marriage. And so all of a sudden, you find in 2004 and in 2008, first in Massachusetts, then in California, same-sex marriage licenses being issued. And so it's very important, I think, for us to know how to answer those questions. And last time we mentioned just briefly the fact that, in a sense, a social experience experiment has been taking place in Europe for some time. You look at the Scandinavian countries and you can see that with the legalization of same-sex marriage, or in some of the uh, countries where you sort of have just de facto legalization of same-sex marriage, it has an impact first on the marriage and on the family. You find that fewer people actually go out and get married. You find that it affects the family. You have more and more children being raised in single-parent homes. And so there is a very profound impact. And it shouldn't surprise us because if you have a genuine article and then you introduce a counterfeit, what you tend to do is devalue everything. If I were to slip a couple of counterfeit dollar bills in your wallet and you were to go out and begin to spend that money and somebody would say, wait a minute, Mr. Zucker, and you just gave me a counterfeit dollar, after a while they would suspect all the dollars in your wallet. And so in the same way, once we devalue the original by coming up with a counterfeit, once we say that marriage is no longer a man and a woman, but it could be, could be two men, two women, of course, that leads, obviously, to one man and many women. Uh, the argument for same-sex marriage is also really, in a sense, the argument for polygamy. You immediately have devalued marriage, and you've had a profound impact, not only in the institution of marriage, but also on marriage and family as well. Now, Kirby, the Bible is pretty clear on its stance against homosexuality and gay marriage, but you also mentioned there are good psychological reasons, uh, medical reasons, physical reasons, that the 
gay lifestyle is really a dangerous lifestyle that we should stand against. Well, it certainly is. And again, we don't want to be critical of all homosexuals. And uh, we recognize that there is oftentimes a difference between male homosexuals and uh, female homosexuals, known as lesbians. But the reality is very clear that if you look at the medical impact of homosexuality, uh, you can immediately see that there are significant dangers. And we can start by, first of all, reminding ourselves of something that we almost always take for granted, and that is traditional marriage is better for us in terms of our mental and physical health. There was a book came out a number of years ago called The Case for Marriage, Why Married People Are Happier, Healthier, and Better Off Financially. Linda Wade and Maggie Gallagher uh, began to just document all the benefits that come from traditional marriage marriage. Maggie Gallagher is a columnist and an incredible researcher. I've had a chance to interview her over the years. Uh, Heritage Foundation has put together, and I document in the book, all sorts of studies which, again, talk about the positive impact that traditional marriage has on families and on the individuals in those situations. By contrast, when you begin to look at homosexuality, there is a very clear set of uh, statistics that show that there is a dramatic difference between homosexual marriage and heterosexual marriage. I just did a uh, probe radio program a while back in which we documented that. Uh, when you look at issues like fidelity uh, and monogamy, we see very quickly that even though we've had problems with promiscuity even in heterosexual marriages, that pales in comparison to the kind of studies that we have seen now of the number of homosexual relationships, either civil unions or same-sex marriages. I pointed out uh, in our previous program that uh, lots of these studies are done by individuals who would disagree with almost everything we're talking about. They would be very pro-homosexual in their orientation. But you have uh, studies that have found that, uh, uh, for example, 43% of white male homosexuals have had sex with 500 or more partners. 28% had uh, sex with more than 1,000 partners. Or the study that was done in the Netherlands, this Dutch study was really published in the journal AIDS, and it was really an attempt to really just document the spread of AIDS. And they they were finding that even men that had a, quote, steady partner nevertheless had an average of eight sexual partners per year. And the reason they were studying this is because they began to understand very quickly that when you look at sexually transmitted diseases, you talk about the emotional impact that this is having on individuals, you can say that there is a very striking difference between homosexual marriage and heterosexual marriage, even though the media would like to say that it's really just one side of a different coin. Yes. And Kirby, also the sexual act in homosexuality is harmful to the body, as you documented in your works, that the lifespan of gay homosexuals is much less than those of the average uh, heterosexual out there. And again, one of those studies that is probably best known as a Canadian study, again, done by individuals that, if anything, have a bent towards promoting homosexuality, but nevertheless having to admit that as we begin to go and look at the longitudinal studies, look at longevity, as we look at some of the actuarial tables, uh, one of the quickest ways to shorten your lifestyle by quite a bit, interestingly enough, is to be engaged in homosexual lifestyles. And and again, it makes sense. Uh, this is going to be a family program, so we don't want to get into the uh, basic uh, issues. But I don't think anybody that understands homosexuality has to guess too much as to recognize that you're changing the plumbing and you're changing the entry points. And as a result, you're spreading diseases. And so there are a variety of impacts, both physically, which you point out, 
but also emotionally. Uh, one of the big issues that we hear about all the time is what about these gay teens? And the argument has always been, well, some of them that have been committing suicide are doing so because actually you have this intolerant view of homosexuality being spread in the schools. Well, you can go back and look at schools where there is a tremendous evidence of tolerance, uh, willingness, and acceptance of homosexuality, and you still see the level of uh, suicide. And it isn't just homosexuality. We've actually been able to document that young people who are sexually involved uh, have uh, sometimes a two to three times higher suicide rate than those who are not sexually involved. So it has less to do necessarily with homosexuality and more to do with just the issue of sexual promiscuity. There are emotional factors, the factors of depression and even suicide have been documented not only for young people that are involved uh, in homosexual relations but even in heterosexual relations and again brings us back to the wisdom of abstinence before marriage. And Kirby, you know, one of the chapters I really enjoy, I mean, if this is the only chapter you read in your book, I think it's worth it all. It's uh, chapter 9, and it's answering some of the arguments we hear out there about same-sex marriage. So let's ask you a few here. First one we often hear is, shouldn't we be tolerant of other lifestyles? And again, I've done a week of radio programs on the Probe Show just to simply try to focus on that because I think all of us are going to need to know more. Now, if by tolerance you mean that we should be civil to other individuals, then I would say a resounding yes. Uh, Christians should be, I think, at the very forefront of being good citizens, of uh, practicing civility, and a sense of practicing the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. But if by tolerance you mean that I have to accept every view that anybody has, every lifestyle that anybody has, I don't think so. Now Christians sort of get caught up in this because I have suggested, Pat, before that it used to be that the most quoted verse in the Bible was John 3.16. But I will suggest to you now probably the most quoted verse in the Bible is Matthew, Matthew 7, 7 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. And this is really, I think, a complete misusing of the verse. Because if indeed we're not to judge people, well, Jesus kind of broke that a few verses later because he refers to certain people as pigs and dogs, talks about wolves and sheep's clothing. Really what it's saying is you are to make judgments, you are to exercise discernment, but to not do it in a hypocritical way. And in the book, I give a whole series of verses that are very clearly telling us that we should have judgment, we should have a sound mind, we should exercise discernment. And so if anything, people have misread this verse. So if tolerance means that I should treat everybody with grace, yes, we should. If tolerance means that I should accept every kind of behavior and lifestyle, no, the Bible doesn't tell us that we should do that at all. Yes, and one of the most loving things to do is to stand for truth and present truth, especially if someone is engaged in a lifestyle that could be harmful. Yeah, and I think so. I mean, I've written other books where I've had chapters, for example, on drug abuse. And if uh, you were to say, well, I just want to love this person as they are doing drugs, you would say, well, that's not loving them at all. I mean, you need to get them out of these harmful drugs that are destroying their life. The most loving thing to do would be to speak out and to warn them about the dangers of drugs. Likewise, if indeed you are convinced that sex outside of God-ordained marriage is not only immoral, but dangerous, and I think we've documented just a little bit of that today, and I certainly document lots of it in the book, the best thing you could do, the most loving thing you could do, would be to warn people about the dangers of that. Now, Kirby, here's another one we hear a lot, especially when it comes time to vote for candidates. 
Don't homosexuals deserve equal rights? I remember a presidential candidate being asked, why do you call what we want special rights? They are equal rights, equal rights for all. That's what we want. Well, I think you have to understand that uh, when you talk about equal rights, everyone has an equal right to marriage using the criteria that we've had for some time. And that gets us back to a very fundamental issue. We don't say that equal rights say that you can marry your cousin or marry your sister or marry your brother or something like that. We recognize that not everybody can get married. There's been a big controversy right now about whether or not individuals under the age of 18 can get married and polygamous cults and the rest. So certainly everyone has equal rights, but when they're talking about that, they really are asking for special benefits. They have the same, homosexuals have the same right to marry as heterosexuals. They have the right to marry a qualified person, certain age, certain marital status of the opposite sex. But when they are wanting to redefine marriage, um, the argument doesn't work very well because it's really an attempt to try to say there's really no difference between, say, same-sex marriage and interracial marriage, for example. Uh, In other words, this is like the civil rights issue. This is just one more step of the civil rights issue. But if you go back and look at uh, the decisions that came down from the Supreme Court on, say, interracial marriage, you've got to conclude something very quickly, because uh, banning interracial marriage was wrong because it prevented two individuals to marry for which there was no compassion compelling reason for them not to be married. And so when certain state laws overturned uh, interracial marriage and when the Supreme Court dealt with this issue, they really weren't calling for a redefinition of marriage. Actually, they were calling for an affirmation of marriage. But when you talk about same-sex marriage, you are calling for a redefinition of marriage. As I've said on my show before, marriage is what marriage is. In other words, when people will call in and say, well, I think we should redefine marriage. Well, then define it for me. Usually I get a very long pause on a talk show because, you know, you can look up any legal document. You can look at uh, hundreds and thousands of years of Western history, and you can come to one very clear conclusion. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And that isn't just a Christian idea. You can go to cultures around the world and have in every single one of those cultures, something that looks like marriage that we would define between a man and a woman. However, when we talk about same-sex marriage, you are, at its very core, trying to redefine marriage. So whereas before, when we were talking about interracial marriage, we were affirming marriage, when we talk about same-sex marriage, in a sense, what we are really doing is we're trying to redefine marriage. That is just a huge point. Reaffirmation versus redefinition. And the ban on interracial marriage was a wrong-headed attempt to preserve family, marriage, and so on. How do we bust up those comparisons between African Americans' quest for civil rights and then homosexual behavior and uh, the quest of homosexuals to be accepted? Because they do, as you say, attach their caboose to the peace train. In fact, many black leaders have said that the homosexual community has hijacked the peace train. But I think it's important to point out that they're, in a sense, when you talk about race, race is irrelevant to marriage. There was a study done, and it concluded that if you look at the DNA of any two people in the world, it will only differ by two-tenths of one percent. And when you look at that actual variation, only 6% of the two-tenths of 1% is 
actually linked to racial categories. So what we see are, you know, significant differences in race are insignificant genetically. Race is insignificant to marriage, but by contrast, gender is essential to marriage because marriage is defined as between a man or a woman. Now, Kevin, uh, I think, raised another good point, Pat, and that is, well, what about the attempts to try to compare the two between, say, African-Americans and same-sex marriage and civil rights versus same-sex marriage? And I think you have to understand something else. Uh, When we define a characteristic that is important in the Constitution— we recognize, interestingly enough, that it has to be an immutable characteristic. You cannot be a former Asian American. I've never met a former African American, but I've met all sorts of former homosexuals. So again, an immutable characteristic says it is something you are born with, you have all of your life, and that is you are born as a male, born as a female, born even with some kind of racial characteristic. By definition, homosexuality is a behavior behavior. There's been an attempt to try to say that it is a person or it's an aspect or immutable characteristic, and this is why there's such a battle against those ministries that are out there that help individuals that are in the homosexual lifestyle leave the homosexual lifestyle, because there's really an attempt to try to say that you were born gay, once gay, always gay. It's an immutable characteristic, and thus it deserves constitutional protection. Supreme Court has never said that, Logic doesn't argue in that direction. Genetics doesn't argue in that direction. And logic does not argue in that direction. Kirby, here's another issue that uh, you address here in your book. Does legalization of same-sex marriage really affect families? Well, and we talked a little bit about the impact that it's having on marriages, and so you can see very quickly that if it's having an impact on marriages, it's certainly going to have an impact on families as well, because these breakdown of these families are certainly going to be affected in a number of different ways, and part of this has to do with the argument that is made that says, well, you are trying to link too much together with marriage, because you say that the public purpose of marriage is procreation. But that doesn't work very well because there are a number of couples that don't have children, either because they choose not to have children or because they cannot have children. So when you say that marriage is tied to procreation and that's its public purpose, there's a disconnect there. Let me come back and understand that just because some couples do not have children does not mean that the public purpose of marriage isn't at least at least one of the purposes procreation Uh, the example I love to use is is you know the purpose I have in writing books is for people to read books but I don't carry the naive assumption that everybody that has a copy of my book has read my book or that everybody reads those book but instead I recognize that some of those books may be in um, bookshelves. Some of them may be in used bookstores. And the fact that people don't read my book doesn't mean that the book wasn't intended to be read. The fact that couples desire to have children and some cannot have children and others choose not to have children does not invalidate that argument. But rather, as we look at the issue of same-sex marriage, again, we can look at many of these various countries and recognize that it is having a detrimental effect both on marriage and on families. Well, Kirby, where do churches and denominations stand on homosexuality? We're seeing a dangerous trend here in many denominations. 
We certainly are. And in this book, I take a little bit of time to talk about uh, some of the churches which I felt have held the line and others which have simply decided to uh, capitulate and to ordain homosexuals, even try to have homosexual marriages and the rest. There is even what is known as the Metropolitan Church, which is an openly gay church. And so I think that's all the more reason for us to really dig into some of the scripture verses which I have in the book to help us understand how we look at the biblical view of homosexuality, because this argument that homosexuality is just outside of the church is no longer very valid, because we find that in many of these denominations, some of our listeners may even be in one of those denominations, there's a very pitched battle on this issue of homosexuality. It's one of the other reasons I wrote the book and have a chapter on homosexuality and the Bible and a chapter on homosexuality in the churches, because I recognize that that has become a major battleground here in the 21st century. Well, Kirby, in our final minute, I want to ask you this question. How do I respond to someone when he says, well, I'm gay? Well, I think we have to do two things. First of all, we need to reach out with our biblical compassion. We need to be loving and gracious. But at the same time, we also should reach out with our biblical convictions. And oftentimes when people hear, I've got a friend that's gay, they go to one extreme or the other. They really are good on truth, but they're bad on love, or they're good on love and they're bad on truth. And I think we have to do both simultaneously. And I really hope that this book will be a great resource that you can use to reach out to some of your friends, neighbors, co-workers who might even come up to you and say, I'm homosexual. What do you think about that? Our guest has been Kirby Anderson, National Director of Probe Ministries. You can contact him at www.probe.org. There are numerous articles he's written on this subject and many more. And the book that he's just come out with that we're promoting here, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality. Great resource for you. Every church, every Christian ought to have this for the challenges we face in the near future. Well, Kirby, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Pat and Kirby, and thank you so much for listening today to Evidence and Answers. By the way, there are two parts to this program, so be sure that you listen to both, and they're available for download at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. If you think a show like Evidence and Answers should be on the air, a show that explores today's worldviews and gives reasons for faith in Christ, then help us keep it happening. Whenever you download or order our resources, you not only equip yourself, but you help provide us a way to rock the culture with some good news. That's evidenceandanswers.org. This is Kevin Harris for Pat Zuckerin. God bless and see you next time on Evidence and Answers.